Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you, people, this is no lie. Today, I'm walking out to my car because I park in the street because I'm a nice guy, and I gave Joanne a parking spot in a garage. But, of course, when I get back from the studio, there's there's street sweeping, so I have to park like four blocks away. It's like it's crazy. I hate it. But there was actually someone who still put out a Christmas tree. Like People still have Christmas trees. There's one Christmas tree left, and it's funny because I walked down, and this is just me. It's standing up perfect. I just wanted to kick it over, but I didn't because what happens is they put them on the street and to recycle but if you pull your car up wrong you can't get shit out of the other side of the car so i'm sitting here i'm thinking you know if you already you should have get your christmas tree by now and so i'm gonna be irritated when i think when i go back if it's still there i think i'm gonna kick it over see that's why i'm, I'm gonna be good I, I shouldn't do it but it's just it looks so good you walk i walk down the steps and it's right on the street it just looks like it'd be so fun to kick so anyway we have a uh, we have a great show today uh a guy uh, actually we did a stand-up gig we we drove like uh like an hour and like uh, 20 minutes and this place was completely clean like you couldn't curse like i mean i know you know i can see not dropping f-bombs but it was uh it was completely clean and uh he actually had the, the opportunity when when i used to book victorios he uh, was doing a stand-up and chris titus came to do a guest set and then my guests had to sit there and follow chris titus and it was a little tiny restaurant but still chris titus and he just ripped it up and my guest how how good says so ron you have no hey don't run good how you doing good i do i pronounce the last name right Close enough, yeah. It's the, What's, the official way is Yavnieli. Yavnieli. Yeah, that's right. But most people say it the way you said it, and that's fine. Well, Close enough. Because you have to say Nyeli. Yeah, now, Yavnieli. Now, now what, what ethnicity is that? It's Israeli. My okay. father's from Israel. Now, your father's from Israel, now, but you grew up in Miami? Yeah, I was born in Miami. Okay, now, now what was that like growing up in Miami? Hot. Being, being a Jewish guy in a, yeah. in a Cuban area. Uh, well, it wasn't a Cuban area yet. when I, So I was born in the late 70s, and it really became like a fully latin city like mid to late 80s i would say in in my observation anyway like uh so the first eight nine years of my life it was basically the sixth borough of new york city okay like uh my family on my mom's side they're all from new york and like you know to the point where like when i was learning how to spell i was surprised because i thought the thing you pull out of a dresser is called a draw Oh yeah, not a drawer. You well, know. see, I noticed that know there's an R at the end of the word. Yeah, because I, yeah. I went to a small college in South Jersey, and I was from South Jersey, and we had more of the Philadelphia accent. But mm-hmm. the kids, because it was a state school, there's a lot of kids from North Jersey. Same thing. They call it draw, and I go, "What the hell? It's a drawer. Yeah. It's Open a drawer. Open the drawer. Yeah. So, not- so, so yeah. I grew up. Uh, you know, the really formative years. It was more like a colony of New York. You know, like really trying to like import and make stick the New York culture in Miami, but my joke is like it was so hot that it just kept melting you right. know and then uh, a lot of the cubans came and colombians and you know people from all over latin america they were already there but then like the culture really took over like in the 80s and it really transformed the city because that culture stuck i think the climate had a lot to do with it because like you know the climate in miami is a lot more like latin america so a lot of the cultural elements that go with that kind of helped it stick i think now, but, uh, yeah, but no, it, yeah. It, it rains a lot too. Yeah, right. Now, now, uh, as a kid, when did you get? Cause when did you get into this whole voice thing and the cartooning? Because it's something that you know, as as kids, we all tend to draw. I, I draw mm-hmm. when I was little. I remember my mom still had this picture of a bear I drew with charcoal pencils. You know, and awesome. I used to doodle. But and as a kid, you do that. But then to sit there and focus on that because when kids we we focus on so many different things we do this and that and this what what when did you start as a kid did you just were you you always fascinated with drawing or did you watch cartoons or what made you focus on that because as i said when we're kids we're scattered everywhere you know i wanted to be a sportscaster when i was a kid then i wasn't i Mm -hmm. in the long run doing something in the thing of that but when did you start finding a fascination with cartoons was it right off the bat when you saw something yeah pretty much i mean as long as you know like ray Liotta said as far back as i can remember I wanted to be a cartoonist, an animator. I just, I always loved it. Um, I don't ever remember not being able to draw, you know, just like from pretty much age three, as soon as I could hold a pencil, I was drawing. And, uh, you know, a little later started sculpting, like when claymation was really popular in the 80s. Um, I got really into that and I had like, my mom still keeps all my old claymation characters in the freezer. Okay. In, ho- in the house I grew up in in Miami, because... Uh, because that's where I kept them because, you know, Miami was so hot, the characters would always melt. So I kept them in the freezer until I would need them to, like, shoot a claymation thing or whatever. What, what kind of characters were you claiming? I mean, and what were you drawing? I mean, at this young age, yeah. I mean, were you drawing stuff you saw on TV? Like, you know, I mean, we always think yeah. about, you know, I'm older than you, but it was always that damn 
turtle in the back of the magazine or draw the oh, thing. Yeah, no, I didn't really see that till later. No, my big thing as a little kid was Popeye. Okay. I just loved Popeye. He was my favorite character ever. I wanted to be Popeye, you know? Like I would uh, you know, put on a sailor hat. My my uncle I had this, you know, wise guy uh uncle named Uncle High who was a, a butcher and a gambler and, you know, just a, a real like New York wise guy. And he bought me some pipes. So, because you knew I liked Popeye. So I wore the sailor hat and I had a pipe and I'd take my mom's eyebrow pencil and draw anchors on my forearms, the whole thing. I just, I was, Popeye was like my mantra back then. And, See, that's cool. And it was my favorite character to draw too. But did you eat spinach? Yeah, I remember being really disappointed the first time I actually tried spinach because I, I hated it. It was gross. Anyway, back then, it was like yeah. it was frozen spinach. Or, like You didn't find fresh spinach. It was like frozen spinach or canned spinach. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than a canned vegetable. Mm-hmm. I mean, that wax beans and spinach are the worst. Yeah. So so you're doing these, you're doing these voices. You're doing the claymation. Now, you're mm-hmm. doing the claymation. Are you creating your own characters now when you're doing the claymation? Yeah. Claymation came when I was a little older, like fourth, fifth grade. Um, you know, they showed us in my in my elementary school class they showed us these uh like how-to things about how to do claymation and there were only a couple of studios around that did it in this country anyway like will vinton studios which is now Leica, um was the main place that that did it and they did the california raisins and the noid and uh so that was like at the height of its popularity when i was around that age like fourth grade so i just started i started by copying their characters so like they had done this movie about mark twain in claymation it's it's actually really cool it's not unfortunately not a lot of people know about it but it's like this really like dark existential movie about life and death that happens to be this claymation movie for kids okay and uh because it's about mark twain going to meet his death intentionally like you know he lived to be 75 and he went uh he, he was born and died with Halley's comet okay so he had this overriding belief his whole life that he had because he was born with Halley's Comet, he had to die with Halley's Comet. And it comes every 75 years. So when he turned 75, he had already lost so much. Like his wife had died, and I think he'd lost a, a child or two. So he wanted to go and meet his death. So they made this claymation movie out of it that Mark Twain and a couple of his characters, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn and Becky Thatcher, get on this big uh, hot air balloon and fly into outer space so Mark Twain can die with the comet. It's it's really dark. Like they'd never make that movie today. Right. But the whole th- and like along the way they get in adventures and they like delve into Mark Twain's stories and the whole thing, and 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 act some of them and all that stuff. So I began when I was doing claymation. I made those characters like my own version of Tom Sawyer and Mark this Twain. This is fifth grade. Thing. Yeah, fourth, fifth grade. Because now, if you did it when you're older, we would call you a clay hack. Right. But see, when you're little, it's fine. So, mm-hmm. But it was cool because you sat there. But that's cool that you actually wanted to put your own twist on it because a lot of times we do see things and you know kids see things and they draw and they want to be just like it. And at that age, that's cool because you're putting your own twist. So that's starting. That's helping yeah. your creativity because at five, we're creative, but you know we're not like mm-hmm. you don't have a concept of what is creative or not. I had a teacher that I credit with with that actually because when I was five. I guess, uh, you know, so rewinding the clock back a little bit, when I was like in kindergarten, um, my parents discovered that I had some drawing talent, you know, uh, I guess above the average five-year-old. So they sent me to get private art lessons. Uh, I wish I remember the teacher's name because she was awesome, but I don't, you know, it was 30-something years ago. But uh, but she was great, and she asked me, she sat me down, she asked me what I like to draw, and I said, I, I want to make cartoons. She said, great, what, what do you, draw me a comic strip. So I started to draw, and she said, what is that? I said, it's Felix the Cat. She said, no, you can't draw Felix the Cat. I said, why not? She said, you have to make up your own characters. So, you know, that was her only rule for me, was I had to make up my own. So uh, so I, I thought that was actually pretty cool because uh, it forced me to do just that. It forced me to make up my own characters. So I did like a knockoff of Felix the Cat. Right. I called him Blackie the Cat. Because Felix was a black cat, so you know, Blackie the cat. That you was could, my. You couldn't you know, do that these days. You'd, no, you'd no. be getting a hell of a lot of, of a hassle you know, going. I was Blackie only, the cat. Yeah, <laughs> I was only five. I didn't know it had any like ethnic oh, yeah, connotation. Know, but uh, he, uh, although if you ever watch any of those old Felixes, there's plenty of like racist jokes oh, in them that all of them, yeah, yeah go over everybody's head. But uh, but yeah, so that kind of forced me to think along those terms. Like you know, it's not okay to just copy other characters. You have to make up your own. So. You know, for the next few years, I, I did that. But even if I wanted to draw another character, like a famous character, I would, I would do that. But then I would try and take whatever element of it that I liked and 
put it into a new character that I was trying to make up. So you're doing this in you know when you're young, and now you get in high school. Mm-hmm. Are you still drawing? Are you still claymating? Yeah. And now, but then, are you starting to think? Because you know, are you starting to think? I want to do this in my for my life goal, my life career. Or are you sitting there going, I don't know where to go or what to do because it's not like you know cartooning and claymation in Miami. It's not like it's sitting there like right. It's on your doorstep. So as you're as a high schooler, what are you thinking about where you're going to go in, in with your career? Well, it's funny you mention that because when I was in high school, that's really when like the animation boom started to happen. This was, I was in high school in the '90s. So, uh, like Disney was starting to come back up, like, you know, they had, they had made the little mermaid and then they made beauty and the beast and then they made Aladdin. This all happened when I was in high school. So animation was really just starting to look attractive as a career to kids with artistic talent. Um, so at that point in my life, it really actually seemed very possible to grow up and become an animator. I mean, I knew it was going to be daunting. I knew it was going to be tough, you know, like, they still had the Disney studio in Florida at the time. It's not there anymore, unfortunately. I think it's just like a museum now um, in you know Hollywood Studios in, uh, in Disney World. But it was an actual working animation studio when I was a kid. Um, they did, I think, Mulan there and a few other animated movies. But um, at the time, you know, they had guided tours through the studio. And you would like look through glass at the animators as they were working on projects, which was really cool. Um, and, you know, you ask the guard or whoever, the, the guide, how do you become an animator? And, you know, they told me some statistics. Like one of them was it's 10 times easier to become an anesthesiologist than it is to become a Disney animator. All right. Uh, so I knew I, you know, I learned that statistic in high school. So I knew I was up against some incredible odds. And P.S. I never did become a Disney animator. Not yet anyway. But uh, I did become one professionally. So, so at least I partially beat the odds maybe i'd be a mediocre anesthesiologist but not a good one so now so now you sit there now you're you you know what's going on now you have to go to college Mm -hmm. now you went to syracuse i believe yeah syracuse and then cal arts so now how did you pick syracuse and did you go on do you i mean there's (laughs) there's not a major of you know first of all no there is the only thing the only thing syracuse has in common with Miami and you is there's a lot of Jewish people. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's the only thing because a lot of kids mm-hmm. from my high school went to Syracuse. All and, imported from the New York, greater yeah. New York City. So area now how did you yeah. pick and, and, and for to leave Miami to go to freaking Syracuse yeah. where it's cold as hell and I grew up, I mean, in Terry Hill, New Jersey, we were like, we don't want to go to Syracuse because it's, I mean, and we got snow. I mean, mm-hmm. Syracuse is like going to college in Buffalo. I mean, how did you choose that? And what was your major? I majored in film. Um, I, I chose Syracuse for a really stupid reason. Stupid few reasons, because there were a lot of hot chicks there. Honestly, that was that was the reason that that I mainly wanted to go. Um, you know, I, I went there and I visited. No, I mean I'm being a little tongue in cheek. You know, that wasn't the reason, but uh, that was definitely a deciding factor to my 18 year old self. Um, and I and also, but they had, at least it seemed at the time, they had everything that I was interested in. You know, I was possibly thinking about maybe becoming a psychologist or or a historian or something. So I thought, you know, at least I'll go to a regular college where I can study art. But if I decide to change my mind to do a more practical career, I can just transfer over without going to a whole new school. Didn't pan out that way. I ended up uh, staying in Syracuse and staying in the art school the whole time, majoring in film, kind of minoring in illustration, even though you couldn't do that because it was within the same school. Um, but I took as many illustration courses as I, as I could. So, I mean, you know, Syracuse does have a bit of street cred when it comes to animation. It's not, no, there is no animation school there. But they had a really good uh, course for it, and they had a really good illustration school where a lot of, like, famous illustrators and comic strip artists and other people related to animation went. And their main selling point, I did when I was there, I did think about seriously considering leaving because they didn't have a real, like, animation curriculum, you know, Um but their main selling point in trying to get me to stay when I would complain to like the, the counselors about it was, well, you know who went here? The director of, uh, of uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. I said, who, Tim Burton? And they said, no, no, he just created it. He didn't direct it. The director was Henry Selick, and he went to Syracuse, which is true. He did. But guess where else he went? CalArts, after he left Syracuse, probably for the same reason I did. I don't know. I never talked to him. Now, did, but, you, you, go, know, did you go to Syracuse all four years? Yes. So you graduated Syracuse. Mm-hmm. And now your, and your major is in film. Yeah. 
and now you have to decide what you're going to do. Now you can go, I mean, you can go to New York, mm -hmm. which is not too, I mean, it's four hours from Syracuse. Right. Or, or, I mean, how did you decide to come to LA? So, uh, yeah, so after I graduated from Syracuse, I had a senior film, you know, every, every in order to graduate, you have to finish a film. So I'd made a few, all of them animated, by the way. Um, and uh, I, my senior film was called Nady the Pirate. And I spent the year, I spent 98 and 99, basically entering it into film festivals and traveling around with it. And it actually won a few. It won a few film festivals around the country. And now, what's the process of that? You sit there and you hear about them and you submit and you get to pay a fee. And if they pick you, they pick you. And if they don't pick you, you're screwed out of your fee? Uh, some of them, but most of them didn't charge a fee. There was one, I forget the name, which is just as well because uh, they were really uh, sleazy, but they charged like some $300 or something fee to play in their festival, which, uh, which was, the big thing was it was playing at Madison Square Garden in New York City. I found out from someone who had been kind of uh, duped by them that, well, yeah, it's Madison Square Garden, but it's like a small room in Madison Square Garden. It's not. This, they, they make it out to sound like it was this, you know, like they fill the stadium and play your, your film. That doesn't happen. And nobody, no film festival should charge $300 entry fee. That's yeah. just ridiculous. So I steered clear of them. Two or three others charged like 50 bucks, but I got into those. Um, the rest were free uh, because it was, a I think mainly, I don't know if it's because it was a student film, but uh, a lot of them were like professional too. Um, but yeah, it was... Uh, yeah, so you, I found out there was like, you know, this is before the internet was really that big a thing where you could just look anything up. But there was like a, you know, a big book, a guide of film festivals that you could enter. And I just went, you know, down the list and sent copies of, you know, I, I had a bunch of videotapes made of my film and sent that out to everybody. And the ones that got into, I sent them the actual print, the 16 millimeter print. So you're sitting there, you're hitting yeah. up these uh, film festivals, mm -hmm. you're, you're getting some wins. Now... Are you thinking this is all on the way to get you to L.A.? I mean, yeah. how does it? How so, does that come into? Because you you have to come out here anyway. Mm -hmm. So around that same time, I was also sending the film and my portfolio to different animation studios around the world, uh, thinking that I would get a job. And except for maybe one or two, uh, all of them, the ones who got back to me, said, "Yeah, your portfolio is not up to snuff, and neither is your film." Good for you that it won you festivals, but uh, you're not good enough to get a job. You need to, uh, I mean, they said it in a nicer way than that, but that's basically what they said. Like, I wasn't good enough to get hired in the industry yet. So, like, not as a storyboard artist or animator or whatever. Um, I had worked already. I'd had some professional experience as an animator, working for a couple of small studios, one in Miami, uh, one in Israel. I had worked in, uh, in a, you know, on some commercials and other things, but... Um, the major studios that I applied to, they were like, yeah, you're not ready yet. You need to go back to school. So I thought, well, if I'm going to go back to school, then I'm going to go to the best animation school in the world where I can learn only animation. Uh, and that was CalArts. So kind of just as an insurance policy, I submitted my portfolio to CalArts too, while I was still submitting for uh, film festivals and jobs. And ultimately, I got into CalArts, and that's what brought me to California. So you go to CalArts, and mm -hmm. now what do they teach you? And what, what I mean, what, what what makes it such a great school? That and is it also because you established contacts? I mean, mm -hmm. what, what what was it that you, you know you you had to bring your game up to get you know as you yeah. said because of what they told you the companies. So what 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 makes it such a special school? Um, that's a good question. I mean, they have that certain je ne sais quoi. You know, I think the school has the reputation, deservedly so, because it was literally founded by Walt Disney himself. You know, he, uh, I think the story goes, they asked him, there was another school downtown LA called Schonard Art Institute. They asked Walt for a donation. And rather than just make a donation, he said, no, I'll give you the money, but I'd rather revamp the school from the ground up and build a whole new thing. And that became CalArts. And, um, and, you know, and so it had that Disney connection from the very beginning. And, um, I think that, uh, so that's one thing. And the other thing is that the industry always came there. And then after like the initial, you know, the first generation of animators, the nine old men, those guys died off, 
everyone who was in any sort of position of power in the animation industry was a CalArts alum. Like John Lasseter, the guy who runs Pixar, Brad Bird, pretty much everybody at The Simpsons, um, you name it, they went to CalArts. Uh, there really is what they call the CalArts Mafia. That is true. I'm part of it still. Um, so, you know, that's the other thing. But for me, what I loved about it, the main reason I stayed, aside from the classes and all that, which were great, the main thing that really kept me there, because it wasn't the degree. I didn't need the degree. I didn't want it. It was, uh, it was the same degree that I already had from Syracuse. The curriculum was totally different, but, you know, it was another BFA in film, which I never needed and never wanted and still don't want and would give back if they let me. I'll take it. Okay, you can have it. It's yours. I'll send um, BFA. It's, it's worthless, completely worthless. However, the th what I loved about CalArts and what I, what I still love about it and what, what kept me there was the camaraderie, was the, the kindred spirits that I found, was the fact that for the first time in my life, I've, I found my tribe. You know, like I, I felt like the ugly duckling who found the other swans, you know. Um... When, when I talked to my grandmother when I arrived, I, I told her that. You know, I said, I feel like the ugly duckling found the other swans. She said, you should never call yourself ugly. Right. You know, I said, it's a metaphor, Grandma. She says, I know, but you shouldn't say it anyway. So um, anyway, uh, that's, you know, it was just great to be in that environment and be surrounded by people who had the same aspirations and the same, and the same uh, obsessions and loved the same stuff and grew up on the same stuff. And had the same frame of reference, because and the other the other unique thing about that was most, if not all of us, in my class, we all kind of grew up as the odd man out. We all grew up as the one guy in the school who wanted to do animation but didn't really know how to get there, you know. So it was good to just finally be surrounded by other people like that. That meant more to me than anything else, and that's uh, that was worth staying for me. So you're staying, and then when you get out. What do you do? How do you apply this now? Because as you said, it's a tough. It's a. I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. easy, easier to be an anesthesiologist. Anesthesiologist. It's uh -huh. easier to say anesthesiologist. Right. It's easier to say animator. Mm -hmm. But no. So well, no, what do you do now? I mean, you know, it's good because you're probably making contacts and you yeah. have friends and you have that niche and that's very important when you have a group that people you know that you get along. Like you know, when I did comedy in Philly, we had our group, but we didn't. You know, it's they're your peers. Mm -hmm. So now you have peers and you know your people. So you know. What do you do to start working? Because now you have to get out there. Mm -hmm. So that's that's another kind of twist in the story there. So around the t I was there from 1999 to 2003. And around 2002, the animation industry took a nosedive, huge nosedive. You might even say it died. Um, Why? Because uh, the main thing that, one of the main things that caused it was that Disney, the studio, uh, officially announced, and this was when Eisner was still there, they officially announced that they're not making traditional animation uh, films anymore. No more 2D animation. And that's what we were all being trained in. Um, CalArts was kind of the last holdout of that, actually. Other animation schools had transferred over to a completely computer-oriented curriculum even when I was getting out of high school. Even like, like Ringling, which was a great art school in Florida, they already had computer animation as their main thing on their curriculum, not CalArts. You could kind of study it, but it was hard to get into and it was hard to, to stay. But they had a thorough uh, training in traditional animation. And in 2002, Disney announced, we're not doing that anymore. So everyone else kind of followed suit. And we got out of school a year later as dinosaurs, basically, with this skill set that wasn't of use to anybody anymore except for us. So um, a few lucky people got hired by Pixar out of my class. A few others got hired by, like, Cartoon Network and a few other places. But most of us were just kind of le left to fend for ourselves. Um, I became a puppeteer for a while. Um, now, what yeah. is that like? Like, I mean, how did you learn to be a puppeteer and what would you work for? Because I, I did background on the Muppets. You did? And uh, just a while ago, yeah, and it was really cool. As a puppeteer? No, I was oh, okay. background. I did background. I was, I was, I was in the audience. But uh, I did it just a little while ago, and it was uh -huh. really cool. These puppeteers, it's really amazing what you guys do. How did you, how'd you learn to puppeteer? Well, I learned that at CalArts, too. I okay. had actually studied it when I was a, a younger kid back in Miami, believe it or not. Um, there was a local uh, puppeteer named Judy Worman who taught local kids how to make and perform puppets. And I actually got really good at that in like, around the same time that I was into claymation, like fifth grade. Um, I won some like national contest for puppet making when i was only like 11 years old um 
and although they 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 made a mistake and they put my friend's picture in the paper instead of mine that sucks uh and my grandmother who i mentioned before called the miami herald and yelled at them over that of course uh yeah which i i always loved that that she did that even though like i wasn't upset about it you know i even called my friend to congratulate him uh she was like no you don't do that to my grandson that's not okay so but, uh so i'd started then and then i kind of dropped it and then picked it back up at cal arts when a bunch of us just wanted to unofficially study puppetry so a few of the teachers who were also animators and did puppetry on the side taught a bunch of us the puppetry skills and we got into that and then so like at the end of uh at the end of every year cal arts does this thing called the producer show which uh is like the big show that they invite all the industry bigwigs to they do it at the uh and actually now they do it at the director's guild but when i was there they did it at the emmys uh theater in north hollywood and um it's up to certain members of the senior class to make the opening of the show. So I got the idea while we were studying puppetry, wouldn't it be funny if we did a shot-for-shot shot recreation of the Muppets with our own puppets of the Muppet show, like and change the lyrics so it's CalArts-specific. And also the, the big joke was, because at the time we had these two crusty old teachers who unfortunately are no longer with us, Mike Mitchell and Corny Cole. Mike Mitchell was... Uh, you know, both of them were extremely accomplished artists. Mike Mitchell is best known for illustrating the initial, the original uh, cover for Catcher in the Rye. Okay. And being good friends with J.D. Salinger. And Corny Cole a a was an animator for every studio that ever was. Uh, can I curse or no? Yeah. Okay, so he punched Walt Disney in the nose uh, and told Chuck Jones, a creator of Coyote and Roadrunner, to go fuck himself. Or told him to, like, shove it up his ass or something like that. That was his go-to thing. So... But they were both like kind of crusty old guys when they were our teachers at Cal Arts. So I thought it'd be funny if we made puppets of them and had them as the two guys in the balcony, as Statler and Waldorf. That was the big reason for doing the whole thing. And um, so we did that, and it was a huge hit. And like we kept that whole thing of Corny and Mike as puppets a secret while we were making it. But you know, you should have heard the room. They everybody lost their shit over seeing these two guys it was like the biggest inside joke right. anyone ever made you know um i realize i might be boring the audience listening to this because they don't know who they are but it was just it was the kind of thing where it's you know a big wink to just everyone who knew those guys and and it just you know kind of catapulted us into into uh i don't know i don't want to say fame because we're not famous but it just it was a big uh it was a big to do so, um, so you use that, yeah. Then you started puppeteering, like, so, yeah. I mean, but how, like, how do you do a job in there for a puppeteer? It's like, I mean, how do you find jobs? It's not like, you know, it's not like in the, in in Monster dot com. There's the puppeteer section. You That's know a I mean? good question. I think, uh, just I, it was word of mouth and Craigslist and just asking around, basically. Um, so I acted in a few, uh, like, you know, puppeteered in a few kids videos and and I uh, and I did it in like a touring show and I had some connections to to the Henson company but I never I never puppeteered there never even got to audition there but I just I knew some people so the fact that I knew some people there got other puppeteers to kind of seek me out and have me audition for them because I think they thought that I would get them a foot in the door at Henson even though I never did so you're puppeteering and now but you you you, you have to be wanting to get back to animation yeah now, how do you learn? Because you said the the trend that changed the the art that the art that you had learned, mm -hmm. some people weren't going to do anymore. Yeah. So now, where do you do? Because it's sort of like you're screwed because you did this time you got good at something, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they're going, oh no, we're not. So now, where do? You, how? I mean, it's like, did you have to reinvent yourself or what happened? A little bit. Uh, I took courses here and there in computer stuff, um, and I got a bunch of freelance jobs for smaller studios around town. Um, eventually. I, uh, oh, oh, I, I'm skipping a, a part of the story here. So, but, you know, when I was starting to do that, getting back into animation, freelancing, doing like development art, storyboards, that kind of thing for smaller studios, um, again, I got a little restless. I think it's just, you know, it's a symptom of ADD or having a creative mind. I don't know. Things were actually starting to go well again for animation. It's not like I was frustrated with it, but I was getting a little restless. I wanted to do something else. So I got into stand up. Right. That's uh, where I met you. Yeah. Um, this was a little over 10 years ago, I guess 11 or 12 years ago now. Um, but yeah, I was you know, starting to get back in animation after puppeteering and got into stand-up, and that started to take off. So 
but and because the animation industry had kind of had kind of gone down, um, CalArts decided to allow their alumni to come back to like career day, portfolio day that they had at the end of every year and lay their portfolios out for recruiters too. You know, it used to be only for the students um, who were graduating or whatever, but uh, but now they decided to allow alumni to come back. And the fact that I had, uh, and I had just like a DVD with everything I do. So I had like puppetry and stand-up and animation, just like if you want to hire me to do any of these, looking at back at it now, it's probably unprofessional to do that. But I did, you know, I just had all my stuff. And um, a recruiter from Disney at Portfolio Day saw my stand-up gig and wanted to talk to me about that. Above, like, above all my animation work or puppetry, he wanted to talk to me about that because he had in mind that I might develop a show for them. And meeting him is, uh, is eventually what led to the show that I have on DreamWorks TV now, Gorillaville, because that's the show that I was developing with him uh, at Disney. So now he, yeah. he wanted to visit, but he wanted your stand up to be for a show. I mean, I mean, how did how was the parallel, and how did it become gorillas? I think I I I don't know. It's uh it's hard to. Okay, so I think what he had in mind in terms of stand up was that because I'm a I'm a comedian, I could be a comedy writer, you know, and because I'm an animator too, I could write and I could draw. So I think he had in mind to like recruit me either as a writer or a storyboard artist or whatever, maybe just be a show creator, that kind of thing, develop a show. Because he was uh, kind of in, in charge of all of that. Um, so we met and talked fairly frequently over a few years. Never materialized into a job or a greenlit show. We, we at least developed the show for a while. So the way it became Gorillas was quite simple. Um, I came back, so I, a few years after I met him, I got a regular job at, uh, at a studio. At the time it was called Veritas that I was working there. But now it's called uh, Cosmic Toast. Now, what were you doing? I was doing everything. I was animating. I was storyboarding. I was character designing. Because um, it was a brand new studio startup thing. And they hired me um, to be like the main animation guy. Work alongside with their director and, and writer. We were mainly working on a show called Slangman's World. Uh, which uh, they eventually revamped into an another thing called Hey Wordy. But uh, this guy, David Slangman Burke created this show of himself uh, teaching languages to kids, teaching foreign languages to kids, because he's a polyglot. He speaks many, I think, several different uh, European and Asian languages, uh, grew up kind of traveling around the world. Um, so he wanted to use what he learned to teach American kids, because most American kids are just, are just monolingual, right. only speak English. Um, so he wanted to you know, kind of catch America up to the rest of the world and I think that was his goal. So uh, so he created this really kind of Pee Wee Herman-esque character and show with where he's like one live-action guy in this whole animated world, and he interacts with all these characters and everything. So I designed their characters. I storyboarded most of the episodes, and I animated the first few episodes all by myself. And then because of my CalArts connection, I started to bring in a few of my friends and colleagues from CalArts to work at the studio with us. And built the team. Um, so after about a year there, we all, me and the director and producers of the show, went to CalArts for the Portfolio Day, where I had met Conrad, this okay. other executive who wanted to talk to me about stuff. And we went to, uh, but that time I went as a recruiter, not as a guy looking for work. Which, if if that's an experience that that I would recommend anyone having, I I wish that for everyone because it's the greatest feeling. Of oh, going yeah. going to a place where you were just like standing in line hoping someone notices you to being on the other side of it. It's it's such a great feeling I can't even describe it. Because, um, you know, guys who used to bust my balls were suddenly kissing my ass. That's, that's always how that's, it is. That's not the only thing about it. But, I mean, it was just... Oh, but that helps. That yeah. makes you feel as good. I mean, it, it's not yeah. the thing. It's like, yeah, because everyone has a stick up their ass sometimes. And they yeah. Sit there and they, they, they try to take advantage of it. And then when mm -hmm. all of a sudden it's on the other foot, they don't understand why they're, you know why you don't want to deal with them that's why i'm nice to everybody yeah exactly I mean, not everybody there's some people i just don't like mm -hmm. but i'm not I don't, I don't feign that i don't guys i don't talk to them i don't deal with them but i'm like you have to be nice to everybody exactly especially in this town so um we went in uh so before the whole event started they had this waiting room off to the side where like all the recruiters were um you know with coffee and snacks and whatever 
And I looked around the room and I real it was this kind of weird moment. Like, I'm the connector here. I'm the one person in this room who knows everybody. They don't all, none of them know each other, but I know all of them from different things, like from internships I had done at studios, from working with them, from, you know, from trying to develop the Disney show, all that. So, uh, oh, so, so here's how the gorilla thing started. This is where I'm getting at. So I had, I happened to have a sketchbook with me that was about half full. Um, now do you always carry, pretty much always carry a sketchbook around? Yeah. Even though I'm, I'm not good about that anymore. Like I don't just draw everywhere I go, but I used to, you know. But uh, so I had a sketchbook with me that was about half full, and Conrad, the executive from Disney, came over, and he was like, "Hey, you mind if I look through this while we wait to go out there?" I said, "Sure." So he was flipping through, and just some one-off sketch I had done of a gorilla uh, in a in a spacesuit planting a flag on the moon with the word "Gorillaville" written on it caught his eye. Now, how did you come up with that idea? I mean, what, I mean, that's just a random a gorilla in a spacesuit with a gorilla. I mean, how it just there had to be something that. It's just, it spurred you and said, hey, this would be funny. I, I want to draw this. I think it, it it wasn't even, it was just kind of spur of the moment thing, like kind of unconsciously came out of my pen. You know, just, uh, that's a that's a fun way to draw, to just kind of let the pen guide you and, you know, not, you know, I didn't have any preconceived notion in my mind okay. when I made that sketch. I was just like, yeah, what is this? All right, that's a gorilla. Yeah, he's a flag. Blah, blah, blah. I'm done. And that's all I thought about it until, you know, a few months later. Conrad looked at it. He's like, hey, what's that? I said, I don't know. It's just something I drew. He's like, we could make something out of this. What, what do you have in mind for it? So at that point, I pitched him what was the original idea uh, that I had, which which kind of didn't go anywhere at that point. But it was like a, a Three Stooges kind of show where it's, you know, three knucklehead apes living in a wildlife preserve, kind of smacking each other around, getting in trouble. He's like, yeah, that's funny, but we need something that's more like a family, something that's more like uh, like Family Guy, but for kids, um, where, where the kids are the main characters, but, you know, the family is the central thing. So from that, we kind of fleshed out the idea of it being like a family of apes living among humans, living in like a human suburb, um, where it's like a mother, father, sister, brother, that kind of thing. And they uh, and the kids are the main characters, and they go to school, and they get in adventures, get in trouble, blah, blah, blah and have to run up against dealing with being apes living among humans. For some reason, uh, we developed it for about three years. I, I did a whole story pitch, and I wrote scripts, and the whole thing. I Somehow I could never quite generate a spark with it. I could never get my head around it fully, because I'm still single. I, I was then, and I still am now. I don't, I'm not a dad of a family. I don't know what it's like right. to write that kind of thing. They say, write what you know. Um so ultimately, Conrad left Disney, and he went to Cartoon Network to develop a lot of their more successful shows now. And uh, you know how it is when you, I don't know if you know, but I think you do, uh, when you're developing a show with a certain executive at a certain studio, when they leave the studio, all the projects they were developing there kind of die off. Right. So that's what happened. Like, I went back to whoever replaced him at Disney, and they were like, no, we're not interested in this. Thanks anyway. But what else you got? So... Um, so at that point, I figured, well, screw it. I was never that big a fan of this version of the idea anyway. I'm going to go back to the original and develop that. So I did that for a couple more years and pitched it around town. Everybody said no until Awesomeness TV, now DreamWorks TV, said yes. So you go in, now they say yes. Now, now when they say yes, how long is it? And the show's called Gorillaville. Yeah, Gorillaville. Now, how long is each episode? And, and how do you get to the point where you can, I mean... When they say yes, then what's that entail once they say that? What do you have to do? So, um, yeah, so when they say, so when I pitched it to them, um, it was a fairly casual thing. Uh, the executive over there is Burke Rawlings, uh, who I had known before from Nickelodeon. Not that I worked there, but I just like had pitched him a couple of ideas, sent my portfolio in. So uh, I sent him a bunch of pitches, like I, ha I had several. Uh, and he picked that one, Gorillaville. He's like, I like this. Let's make this. So I said, great. So, uh, you know, he, he talked to my manager who talked to me and told me what the budget was going to be and, uh, how many episodes they wanted, how long they had to be. And I got started making them. Took me about a year to make the first season. How many and, episodes? Uh, 13 altogether. And the way that went is like at first he greenlit one. I, I, if I remember right, this was about two years ago. So yeah. 
greenlit one episode. Just make us one three-minute episode. So I said, okay. I had one in mind already. I'd already written it. And then I wasn't even done storyboarding that when he said, actually give us three. So I said, okay. So I started boarding and writing the next two. And then, again, before either of those were even finished, he said, now make it seven. So uh, by the time I had delivered, I think, the first one or two, they, they all took about three and a half uh, months to make. And Each one? Yeah, but there was overlap, so it took about, I don't know, five months to make all three of them. But the, you know, but each one alone of that five was like three and a half. So I was just, there was a time there where I was just constantly working because of the order of it, you know. Um, so then three became seven, and then seven became 13. So after, yeah, about nine months to a year, I finally finished the 13. And then before those were even done, they greenlit season two. And I said okay, but if I'm going to do season two, I'd like to know that I'm going to do all 13 so I can do them all more efficiently. That kind of backfired on me. Uh, it became less efficient, uh, but uh, I figured it out. And now I'm doing, now I'm finally, I just, as of today, they finally put up the last episode of season two on Go90 where it's airing. And uh, I'm starting on season three now. Now, it originally aired somewhere else, right? Yeah. Now, wh where did it originally air? Oh, so and it's still airing. It's, so it's on DreamWorks TV's channel on YouTube. Okay, so if you go to YouTube, yeah, you type in DreamWorks TV. Okay. Uh, it's on there. It's on their channel. Or you can just go to YouTube and type Gorillaville, and it'll come right up. Now, how many, gr uh, there's, how many gorillas are there? Like you said you changed it. Is it three gorillas just yeah, sitting so there now? Yeah, so now it's three. Um. And technically, only one of them is gorilla. So there, there's uh, there uh, Ganto, him gorilla. He'll talk like this. Uh, hi, me and me do all voices. Too. Oh, you do all the voices of uh, three main guys. Yeah, uh, and my brother does uh, some of the others, and my friend Ethan does some. And I want to be a, yeah. I want to be a voice in one episode. All right, you got the, it. The radio host. I'll interview, I'll interview gorilla on Cooper Talk. Okay, you got it. I will well, be fun. You, you interview now. You interview <laughs> exactly. uh, Ganto. Ganto gorilla. Him, uh, you know, big dumb oaf, uh, lovable uh, guy. And he was the original gorilla. Yeah, he's one on on space. Yeah. Okay. So now and now he has two others that they're not. What are what are they? If they're not gorillas. So uh, so uh, one of the others is Bobo. Uh, he's a bonobo, otherwise known as a pygmy chimpanzee, uh, the smartest of the great apes, uh, other than humans, of course, and. Um, the uh, the closest relative of humans in the great ape family, closer than chimpanzees, believe it or not, and uh, you won't ever find any of them in zoos though, because they they have sex with everything that moves. And, okay. Uh, I and like that. I like Bobo. And that's not um, that's not exactly a a thing that's becoming of of a family visit to the zoo. But Bobo's not like that. You see, he's all brain. He's actually kind of prude when it comes to that. Um, and he wears a space helmet, uh, so I sort of fleshed out all the different characteristics of the one drawing that I did. So I gave the space helmet to one, and I gave the gorilla to the other, and etc., uh, etc. Et so now, who's the who's the third guy? And uh, the third guy is Claude. He's uh, he's an orangutan, and he's kind of a jerk. Uh, in fact, that's his theme song, Claude the orangutan. He's kind of a jerk, and uh, he's uh, somewhat based on Clyde, you know, from uh, from uh, Every Which Way But Loose. In that, you know, he's supposed to be a retired uh, circus performer, movie actor, and he's a wise guy. He don't take no guff from nobody. He talks like that. And uh, you have several other characters, like the the main zookeeper where they live is called Sarge. So they live in a yeah. zoo, so it went back to your original idea of them yeah. just screwing around. The, it's really based on, there's a place in Miami where I grew up. So you want to know why I'm obsessed with gorillas. Uh, there's a place I grew up, uh, near where I grew up in Miami, called the Monkey Jungle. And it's been there, I think, since the 1920s, literally. It's been there that long. And it's a zoo-ish. It's not exactly a zoo, though, because the animals aren't in cages. But you're there, and you walk in, and there's this huge canopy of trees all around you, and there's thousands of monkeys. Uh, and they have many different species of monkeys. I don't think they're all mixed together, but like the main type of monkey they have, they're free to roam around in this huge canopy of trees. And you're kind of fenced in, in like this chicken wire kind of enclosure, and they can lower these uh, these bowls, metal bowls down, and or just stick their hands through, and you can feed them peanuts or berries or whatever. Um, they also have gorillas there. They also have chimps there. And on one of my many frequent visits there, I've been going there since I was a kid. On one of my many visits there, like as as a young adult, this gorilla came out from his uh, his name is King, and he came out and he was the chillest, most relaxed gorilla I had ever seen. And he was like, you know, if he could talk, he would have said, hey, everybody, what's up? 
Okay. You heard right. I'm a gorilla. Can I have some bananas now? Cool. Thanks. I will see you guys later. And he just kind of strolled off. So I thought, what a great personality. I drew him a lot. And he was kind of the basis for that gorilla that was in the spacesuit in the in the original sketch. And kind of the basis for Ganto also, except changes personalities from chill to more dumb. Okay. And, and yeah. And uh, so those are the three main guys. You also have Sarge, who's the main zookeeper. And Jane, who's kind of based on Jane Goodall, who's like the nice one. They're like, you know, good cop, bad cop. Or mom and dad, almost. And, you know, a few other minor characters who are monkeys and apes and gorillas that, that flesh out the cast. So now, now the new... St- but you find it now on... What's the new thing called? DreamWorks TV. No, but isn't there the, the something 90? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so season one is, on, is still on YouTube. You can go there right now. Uh, I made it easy for everyone to find. Just go tinyurl forward slash gorillaville. And it'll take you to uh, DreamWorks TV's Gorillaville page. Um, there's there's also a new app out now called uh, Go90. Uh, that's G O nine zero, and that uh, is um, is uh, is put out by Her- uh, Verizon, and uh, it's kind of the same idea as YouTube or Hulu, where you know it's a lot of videos, creator content, that kind of thing. Um, and season two is there. On Go90. And so there, there's like three minutes each episode? Yeah, three and a half to, to four minutes. Yeah, most of them. Now, also, I know I saw, like, I, this got this was a few years ago, on Yahoo. Was it Sketchy or something like yeah, that? Yeah, that's I, right. I remember, well, I saw you directed. I, it was just weird because I was sitting there. I was on my computer. And then, you know, I, my homepage is Yahoo. Mm-hmm. And then I saw it. And it was like, I don't even know how it was on my page. I mm-hmm. mean, I guess, it's, you know, they do this. They actually, they, they slide things. Like, we'll go like. There'll be a sports story, then a food story on the, on the home page. But you directed something on Sketchy? Yeah, I directed a few. Okay, now, uh, now, how'd you get involved with that? So, um, I put... How much time we got? Are we running out? Uh, 13 minutes. Okay, so uh, back in 2011, um, I put an ad out for a roommate, and uh, the guy... Well, you have a very nice place. Oh, thanks. I was there when we went to the comedy show. Thank you. I mean, you know, you might not want to be outside after... 11 at night right but yeah, it's, it's nice it's hardwood floors right uh yeah, yeah. that's right so uh yeah the condo where i live i put an ad out for a roommate tenant whatever and the guy who answered it um eventually moved in and and became one of my best friends still and he had this connection to yahoo through through his manager at the time which was principato young um and they principato young were producing all this new content for yahoo including sketchy so because they managed him, they, they thought, you know, the best place for him would be to write and direct comedy sketches for Yahoo. So he asked me to join him in that, and I did. So the first few we did were were uh, were his ideas and were, like, more live-action oriented. Like, And there was one, was like, Siri versus Garmin. He wrote it. He started it. We co-directed it. And then uh, we did a couple more, and then eventually we started doing animated ones, too. First one we did was called Prawn Stars. Which was uh, which was like kind of a what if the show Pawn Stars took place in the SpongeBob universe? You know? So there's shrimp. Yeah. So uh, so because of my training and expertise, I uh, led the way on the animated ones, but he co-directed them with me as well and, and wrote them too. And now we how, split the voices. How do you direct animation? I've always wondered that, like, because it's not like a human. Like I can say, okay, we're yeah. gonna do this. Like. It's a drawing. I mean, how do you yeah. direct? It's it's in your head. You're drawing it. I mean, uh-huh. how do you direct? I don't. It's it's really about uh, planning, and making decisions beforehand. So it's kind of like it's really more like being a choreographer of a ballet than it is being like a live action movie director. You know, because uh, even though there there are some elements of choreography in that as well, but there's much more choreography going on with animation directing than. In live actions, you know, you you can absolutely have a huge improv element in live action, whereas in animation you can, but it has to come earlier, you know. So like basically, as a director, it's up to you to decide where the camera goes. Okay. But you got to make that decision in the storyboard phase. It's a, and it's up to you to decide what the acting is going to be, but you have to make that decision during the layout phase when the characters are being placed against the backgrounds. And, it, and as a director, your job is to describe to the animators well enough what you want the acting to be so they can do it right without having to do it again. Once in a while, they will have to make a few corrections here and there. Uh, like, you know, sometimes 
I would get a scene back from one of the animators and be like, no, that's not what I meant. Uh, what I meant was this, acting-wise. You know, they'll, they'll misinterpret whatever. Um, and you have to send it back, and they redo the whole scene. And it's a bunch of drawings on the floor or whatever, you know. But so as a director, your job is to preempt a lot of those things so you don't have to do retakes because there isn't really room for them in animation. Surely there's room for correcting mistakes. Right. you got to factor that into the budget. But there's no room for a second and a third take. you got to nail it on the first try, and you do that by planning. If that makes sense. Now, what was the one, the uh, Disney Star Wars corporate retreat? Oh, yeah. So that was our biggest hit. Um, so right, you know, end of 2012. Was it end of 2012 or beginning of 2012? When was it? I think it says 2013. Yeah, so, so right at the end. Yeah, so right at the end of 2012, Disney bought Lucasfilm and Star Wars and everything that goes with it. And it was huge news for everyone in the film industry, everyone who ever has been a fan of Star Wars, which, of course, I am. And I said to Ethan, uh, my my roommate, writing and directing partner, I said, we got to do something with that. We, you know, as long as we're still doing the sketchy stuff, we got to do something about that. And we need to make ours the first and the best. So let's get on it. So Ethan pretty much wrote it himself. I did a little bit of editing, but he pretty much wrote it. Is it animated? Yeah, it's animated. And um, and and I, you know, directed the animation part. And we, you know, assembled voice cast. It was Ethan and me and my brother and, and a couple of other friends of ours. And we wrote it and recorded it and had it all animated and finished within a month, which is extremely fast for animation. And if you watch it, you know, if you see the, the animation quality is not that great. You know, it's, it's a, on a par with like early South Park stuff. But that's because we got it done so fast and because there were so many characters. Um, but... The whole reason was we just we wanted to do something that just really nailed it on the first try. You know, just what I wanted to do was make something that when people watch it, after knowing about the Disney buying Star Wars thing, when they watch it, they say, damn, I wish I thought of that. You know, because there's so many sketches and stand up bits. When I watch, I'm like, that's what I say. I'm like, damn, I wish I thought right, of that. Right. I wanted to make something like that. And uh, to, uh, against my credit, to Ethan's credit, I didn't even think of doing this for myself. As you know, part of my stand-up act is my James Earl Jones impression. Right. Um, so he wrote this scene for me to do like this sort of verbal sparring between Mufasa and Darth Vader, both voiced by James Earl Jones. Which, you know, if ever I had like a voice actor calling card, that's it. Right. And I owe it to him because he wrote it for me. It's basically just them saying, you sound like me. No, okay. no, no, no. You sound like me, et cetera, et cetera. Now, now can people find that online? Yeah, it's on YouTube. Um, it's still on Yahoo Sketchy. So the um, the uh, the the version that, that Yahoo released is on Yahoo Sketchy. You can just go to Yahoo and, and look it up. Look up Disney Star Wars Corporate Retreat. The director's cut is on YouTube on my page. Now, what's, what, what, what else can people find on your page? You can find all of the other animated sketches that we did. Um, they were pretty cool about letting us put them up on, on my page, too, because, you know, it's good for my reel. You can find my reel. You can find some of my student films, like Doggy Door, which I made at CalArts, um, and Nady the Pirate, which was which I made at Syracuse, which was the one that I uh, talked about um, winning festivals and all that, and um, and some of my stand-up bits, actually. Now, I, I, I don't know. I go to YouTube just to watch videos. Yeah. I, I have an old short film Three minutes, Steve Cooper, not so funny guy. I did years ago mm -hmm. on there, and I think my I have a stand up set from the Ice House there. But I just type in, you know, I don't go watch it. I still too to go now. Now, so they would just type your name in search. Yeah, or just you know YouTube forward slash Ronimation. That's R O N I M A T I O N. Uh, that's that's my clever you know way of using my name with animation. So. That's the name of my page, Ronimation. Okay, so they can do that because they don't because your last name is hard. To, uh, yeah, it's what it's Y A V I N E L L I. Not uh, quite. No. No. Y A V N N I E L I. Okay. Yeah, it's a mouthful. I know. I know, but yeah. it's, you know, we guys call you Ron Yavi. They're gonna call yeah, you Yavi. That's fine. And so now, what else is going on? We have a few minutes left. What? Uh, so you, the Gorilla Bill is coming out. Uh huh. And they can find that. Uh, Find it on YouTube and go ninety on Friday. Yeah, uh, no, it's it's on uh, it's it's out right now. Okay, uh, as of this recording on the day we record this, uh, I'm not sure when you're going to release it, but it'll be well, yeah. it'll air on Indie tomorrow, and then it'll okay. be on my website on the weekend. So for those of you listening, as of yesterday or last week, depending when you listen to this, 
all of season two of Gorillaville is now up on Go90, and you can find it. Just uh, either go to DreamWorks TV's channel on Go90. Well, first you have to download the Go90 app, but then DreamWorks TV has a channel, uh, and you can find Gorillaville there. Just search. Uh, join the Gorillaville crew. They have this thing on Go90 where it's like a crew, so I manage that crew. You can join it. Um, and season one can be found on YouTube, uh, also on DreamWorks TV. Now, any, any word about season three? Yeah, I'm making it. Okay, so... It, it's been greenlit. Uh, we're, we're doing it a little differently this time. We're doing 10 episodes instead of 13. Um, and we're doing them in two halves. So we're doing the first five and then uh, getting those done and then doing the second five. Now, is it continuous story or that you can watch like episode six before episode yeah, one? Yeah, it's, it's set up that way. They wanted something that could be that could be watched as like, you know, so any episode could be episode one. That said, uh, if you watch from episode one, especially season one, there is a bit of a through line. The, the characters do seem to have a bit of an arc, you know? So like episode three, we introduce a character called Manny, who's a, a little squirrel monkey who uh, who bullies Ganto, the, the big uh, okay. the big gorilla. Um, and, you know, that's the comedy because Manny, you can literally fit him in the palm of your hand and Ganto is eight feet tall. But he's afraid of this little squirrel monkey who's bullying him. Um, and there is an, an arc in that episode and kind of, throughout the rest of the season because of that now you now know? do they tweet do the, do the animals tweet yeah they do oh. uh glad you mentioned that so uh bobo ganto and claude all have uh, twitter accounts their own accounts yeah they do like um, what's ganto's accounts ganto is uh at ganto gorilla uh spelled like it sounds g-a-n-t-o-g-o-r-i-l-l-a uh bobo is um at bobo says that's as for some reason bobo bonobo was already taken so uh, it's at Bobo says that. So that's at B O B O underscore S E Z, and uh, Claude's is um, at Claude. Uh, is there a the in there, or is it just Claude Orangutan? I'm gonna say there's no the. So it's but it's Claude the Orangutan, and it's the right way to say it is Orangutan, but he says Orangutan because you know he's a street guy. Right. So it's uh, at Claude Orangutan on Twitter. Uh, C L A U D E O R A N G U T A N orangutan <laughs> and now is, is yeah. there also a gorilla uh gorillaville page no not yet i mean a oh, tweet that they have their own gorilla have its own no. Twitter, just the ganto and yeah the... just the characters from gorillaville do what do they so say they mainly retweet my tweets okay but sometimes they'll like get into like a you know a, a twitter war with each other about you know interacting with, i think i think yeah. i follow ganto i you do I, I don't know. I think I think because I think you. Uh, you Ganto, think Ganto follow you back? I think no. I think Ganto follow me, and then I follow Ganto. Well, See, you I can follow me. You can follow Claude too, and, and follow I'll, me. I'll, of I'll follow them all if they follow yes. me back. If they don't follow me back, I delete them. Of course, I'll happened the other day. Back. Someone's like, it's so funny because I'm like, I follow someone, they don't follow me back. Some girl goes, I need, I need 700 followers. Oh, now I'm no big follower, but I have 13,000 followers. Uh -huh. So I, you know, but, and I, I don't, I don't, even, I don't even follow like a thousand people. HBO follows me. Okay, that's only, awesome. They only follow people, and you know what? This person says I need I follow them and they can't follow me back. And I'm like, I want to yeah, sit there and go, cool. hey, you know what? Nia Vardalos follows me. Who follows you? When you follow someone, you follow back. I mean, mm -hmm. I, if Ganto doesn't follow me, I understand because he's an animal. Right. That's all right. And gorillas, you know, they're, they're, you know, they don't, they're not too smart. But these, some of these people, they, they should be able to figure it out. Right. So anyway, anyway, we've got to wrap up. Uh, okay. And so your, uh, your, you, for your personal Twitter is? Uh, at Ron underscore Yavnieli, Y-A-V-N-I-E-L-I. And you're on Facebook. I'm on Facebook. Same name, Ron Yavnieli. I have a fan page, Ron Yavnieli Comedian. Gorillaville has a fan page on Facebook. You can find it there. Uh, Bobo, Ganto, and Claude also have Facebook pages. Link to the Twitter account. You can find them. And uh, so that's you know, Gorillaville on DreamWorks TV and Go90. Uh, DreamWorks TV also. YouTube and Go90 DreamWorks TV, Gorillaville. Cool. And Ronimation.com is my personal right. So website. check them out, people. Also, All right. so check out, follow me on Twitter at CooperTalk. That's at CooperTalk. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net, where I have over uh, 460 episodes up. You can also uh, email me at Cooper at CooperTalk.net. Um, if you have an Android uh, tablet or phone, go to the Google Play Store, type in one word, CooperTalk. All my uh, all my episodes are up on my app. It's a picture of me, so you see what I look like if you've never seen me before. And you can also go to iTunes or Stitcher and listen. That's just also again, it's one word Cooper Talk. You got to fill it in. Check that out. Also, I'll be doing a comedy show. It's been a long time. Uh, January 31st. That's a Sunday at seven o'clock at Flappers, the main room in Burbank. Uh, follow me on Twitter. There's a link for half price tickets and uh, how how Sparks. Is headlining. Very funny guys in that uh, that Lab Rat show on Disney, so you can check them out. And my other website, StopTheSalt.com. Go buy my low-sodium cookbook. 120 recipes. No pictures to intimidate you. Not a bunch of ingredients to freak you out. It's easy food. 
You can get it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble, but get it from StopTheSalt.com because I make more money, and yeah. I sign it, and it's all about me making money. So keep on listening. I'm glad you listened. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I will talk to you guys next week, and have a wonderful weekend.